Welcome to the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by Brain Fuel. Brain Fuel is a cerebral beverage that helps you find your flow state, enhance mental focus, and cognitive endurance. Elevate the brain and the body. To get yours, visit brainfuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, fuel.com, and enter the code LIFO15 at checkout for your 15% off discount, L-I-F-O-1-5, and enjoy today's episode. Today's episode on Life in the Front Office, powered by Brain Fuel. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, here with my co-host, Andy Dolich, and our guest today, Ben Sutton, founder and chairman of Teal Capital Partners. Really excited to talk to Ben about his marks that he's left in the industry and continuing to leave uh, on many different leaders across the industry, as well as different parts of our business. Um, Andy, why don't you tee it off, tip it off, kick it off, however you'd like uh, with Ben, and, and we'll go from there. Well, we'll tee it off because, as you can see in the background that Ben has, um, it's a local muni somewhere on the West Coast that uh, a few people are aware of um, that uh, Ben has played, and I've been lucky enough to be there a few times. But what I'd like to do, Ben, to introduce you to the audience for a man that needs absolutely no introduction is we really had a an event yesterday with Phil Mickelson winning the PGA at uh, closer to 51 than 50. And you've seen uh, the sport grow up. You've seen many sports grow up. But when you look at something that is surprising, that that all the geniuses didn't know about, and I don't know whether, what was Phil, 250 to 1 or something like that, and it happens, the potential of humanity to overcome anything. What did his victory mean to you, not just from a golf standpoint and somebody that loves the game and plays the game and nurtures the game, but for somebody that looks at the business of sports, what did it represent to you? Well, you know, that's an interesting question and it's a great question. So I would, I mean, you know, personally, I mean, I, I mean, Phil is a man of the people. And, um, you know, here's a guy that uh, uh, is certainly a gifted athlete in terms of hand-eye coordination, et cetera. But, but by all accounts, everybody that I know that knows him, uh, I've met him several times, but, but my friends on tour who know him and know him well, um, you know, say that, that there are very few people who have ever outworked Phil. And, and if you look at pictures of him from, 20 years ago to today, he's kind of gone the opposite of most of us as we've aged. We get the little paunch and everything else. He kind of started with one. And he's, I mean, frankly, he's probably in the best shape physically that he's ever been in his life. Um, I certainly know from my own game, and I'm, you know, card carrying 13 index guy, uh, you know, but I hit the ball further. Um, you know, and, and I and I know that I have mostly technology to thank for because the ball is livelier, the equipment um, is is more alive and, and more forgiving than the equipment uh, that that uh, folks like you and I might have grown up on. But he's still got to keep up with the bombers. Even the guy he played with, Brooks Kepka, who hits the ball, um, you know, he and DeChambeau are always in the top five of of driving distance. Uh, you know, so he's he's certainly not going to be able to generally um, 
hit bombs that are, you know, he might hit a bomb that's 330 years, yards, but they've hit it 350. But one thing that I do know is that winners win. And uh, I remember when I decided to step down as chairman at IMG College, I still had, as has been well documented by sports writers, um, you know, a couple of years left on my contract uh, to, to stay around. But I just, you know, I frankly was bored out of my mind because I had built the business um, with a great team. You know, we built four national market leading and market making businesses in the college sports space. Um, sitting around giving a little coaching advice every once in a while when asked uh, just didn't didn't sit well with me. And um, I love to compete. I love to win. I love to compete even on the golf course as bad as I am. Um, you know, I played this weekend. I played a couple or three rounds, I guess, the last several days with my buddy, Billy Andrade, who is a great uh, you know, 13 or 14, 15 time winner on the PGA and Champions PGA Tour. And, um, and you know, I played with him last week. He shot 64 and 65 in successive days in a non-tournament event. Uh, but with a bunch of people who really wanted to play and wanted to compete with him. Well, I was and, I was five under at the Stanford driving range last weekend. I'm, yeah, me so. too. I'm like the greatest practice team player <laughs> ever. But I just love seeing guys who just like the part of their lifelong mission is to compete. Um, so, you, I mean, I would say that it's affirming for people like me um, who didn't, you know, I think most people in my position may have just hung up their cleats and we talk about that a lot where people go, oh, uh, Ben, uh, aren't, uh, how are you enjoying retirement? And go like, I'm not. And they go, oh, what's wrong? I go, I'm not retired. I, I mean, it's um, just it's just not, not in my nature. You know, dad came to work with me at 68 when he retired as CFO. He was at three different colleges as CFO and um, our academic institutions. And he, he comes to work with me at 68. He left at 84. When I stepped down as chairman and CEO at IMG, he left and he was 84 years old. My mother still operates a business and she's 83 years old. Um, it's in our nature uh, to work. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who, you know, might have a big lick or, or have done well and say, well, I just, I'm, you know, at 55 or six years old, I'm going to hang up my cleats and not play anymore. But for me, I love the thrill of competition. Mm -hmm love to build teams. Um, I love uh, coaching CEOs and imparting the wisdom of, of my own failures and experiences. And, and so for, to watch Phil yesterday was actually in a very meaningful way for me, very affirming. And, and, and what, so that one, other, one other point to that before we, we move on. Um, there was a great focus uh, from the broadcasters and others that it wasn't just the physical divide, right? As you say, mm -hmm. how hard Phil worked, but the mental focus, right? Golf, as you well know, and Jake, um, yeah, you got to, if you don't have a swing, forget about it. But if you don't have it right here between your ears, you got no shot, no yep. matter how great you are. And clearly they made a big deal of all the work that Phil has done on his mental preparation for somebody that swung the club millions of times. Correct. What did, what did that mean to you? I just think that it just, you know, again, it's like I said, I mean, winners win. He, 
I mean, he literally has a belief and, and, and I don't think he's ever, I'm sure there have been moments where he had a little bit of wavering, but I don't think, you know, when you miss three cuts in a row on the big tour and you say, well, maybe I should be playing the champions tour. He goes out and wins the first two events he plays in. I just think there, there are people like Phil. Um, I want to believe this about myself. I certainly believe it about my buddy, Andy Dulwich, that you just, there are people who are just wired to, to, to build, develop, and win. And, and, and frankly, the older I get, the more patient I get, which means by definition, the more discipline I have around kind of the mental aspects of winning. And, and I still am a very, you know, confident person uh, when it comes to, you know, building winning organizations and, and doing well by our partners. And I think, I think that's what Phil brings um, to the table. And I'll guarantee you, you know, as, as, as inspiring it was, as it was for, you know, hundreds of millions of people who love sports and golf. And by the way, it's one of the greatest sports stories of my lifetime. Okay. I mean, I mean, I, I remember hanging on every shot when Tom Watson almost won at Turnberry at 59 years old. I never pulled harder for anybody um, until yesterday. Uh, but it, it's just very, I think it's very heartening, um, you know, for, for lots of people um, and very inspiring. But the person that probably inspired the most was Tiger Woods. He's going to probably want to get up and say, well, I can do that too. And uh, we know how competitive he is. And that's going to be great for the game of golf. Yeah, no, that's Hill here. Hey, didn't you used to be Tiger Woods? Yeah. And he's, yeah. he's not going to like that. No, so hey. if, if we could uh, change uh, direction just a bit, you, you know, you are, and I always give Jake these terms and he, uh, he shrugs his shoulders. So I said, so Ben Sutton is I.I. And they go, oh, is he in the Navy? I go, uh, my I.I. is institutionally inquisitive. He always wants to know what's happening. How does that work? Where is it going? So if you look at the business of collegiate sports today, when and if you could give the listeners just a bit of background on how you started down the road from, uh, from Tobacco Road and the Carolinas and Wake and, and you built these institutions, which you continue to build. What was it like back then? What did you see and what do you see now? Um, well, I, so I would say first, Andy, that you know, universities are a little bit like um, you know, government. Uh, they're not exactly <laughs> known for being nimble. They're not exactly known for being bastions of excellence when it comes to innovation. Um, I mean, certainly there are areas where that is the case, but they're not generally, um, you know, places that foster on, the entrepreneurial spirit. And, and so, you know, so I would say that, that, you know, my learning of working at Wake Forest while I was in law school, really in a full-time job, and then continuing after law school for another seven and a half or eight years, um, was that, um, if you wanted to build a nimble organization, you needed to have the, the business components that make up that organization 
out of a place that was by definition not going to be nimble. And, and so I watched and looked and I studied the pros because they generally have always kind of been, especially, especially the NFL, um, you know, it kind of been 20 or 25 years ahead of, you know, amateur sports in terms of the way they market. And a lot of the other pro sports that are. But all the, all the pro sports. Yeah. And all, but all the pro sports were ahead of all the big leagues were ahead of, of college. And, and you looked and they all had all their rights kind of, you know, in one package and in college, for whatever reason, uh, you know, my, my, I remember the, my study, uh, analysis was actually on the University of North Carolina, not Wake Forest. I was like, you know, how, how can North Carolina have one company selling their live radio play-by-play, another company selling their television coaches shows, and maybe at that point they maybe had some third-tier television rights, and another company selling their call-in shows, and another company selling their uh, out-of-home signage, you know, et cetera, and another company selling their uh, print uh, uh, you know, publishing stuff. And by, at that point in the 1990s, Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet. Um, and so the digital assets didn't exist. But but you had, I mean, Carolina literally had seven different vendors in the marketplace representing the University of North Carolina. Now, these billionaire owners of the National Football League and Major League Baseball, I mean, most of them, you know, some of them did wake up on third base thinking they hit a triple and daddy passed down the money from granddaddy and they got it. But most of them actually made their own money. They're pretty smart guys. And so they would never stand for a model like that. They built other organizations and, you know, where all the sales for the organization were in the organization. And so basically all I did was co-op that model and put it in college sports. And for whatever reason, my competitors, all of whom I have great healthy respect for, but Learfield hosts, you know, uh, CBS, ESPN, they were kind of one dimensional. They, and, and I thought, well, gosh, if we put all the objects together in one basket and take it to market, um, the school is going to be the, the largest beneficiary, but we're going to benefit too as, as their rights holder. And, and so it, it took a few years for, for schools to lose that model because, again, they're not nimble. They don't move fast. Well, they have more constituencies that have a decision in, in the pie than right. any of the pros, right? Correct. Correct. And so instead of one person, you got a committee for everything. And so, um, but we convinced Wake Forest to do it and showed them why it was compelling for Wake. And we rapidly got adoption from Virginia Tech and Cincinnati and Marshall and Alabama and Georgia Tech, and we were off to the races. And um, and and so over the course of 18 years, you know, we went from being uh, somebody nobody had ever heard of in 1992 to the point that by 2007-8, 15 years into the deal, um, you know, we were not only the market maker, we were the market leader. But not just in multimedia rights, we built a burgeoning great remnant ticket sales business, a, a great stadium sitting business, had an investment in a fast growing licensing, trademark licensing business. And so we had really, and we, we were continuing to build platforms um, to solve challenges for athletic directors. And what, you know, to, to interrupt Ben for a second mm-hmm. from uh, learning, um, 
we've talked a lot in life in the front office about three key components of success, leadership, teamwork, and trust. And if you look at the hundreds of organizations and the thousands of colleges and all other sports, you don't find a tremendous amount of that showing itself every day. Correct. And when I went to work as a consultant for IMG College, I saw it right away. I felt it in the DNA and that doesn't come by accident. So you and the people that you put together that team you had that teamwork, leadership, and trust. And I know it's not something that you could just you know, push a button. What are some of the elements as you were building these incredibly successful organizations um, that helped you build that teamwork, leadership, and trust? So lots of people have said this and lots of people will take credit for uh, inventing the saying, but culture eats strategy for lunch. Um, and, and I really do believe that if you don't get your culture right, um, that it makes building a sustainable organization, a company that is, as Jerry Poros, Poros and Jim Collins described in their treatise, built to last, you, you don't have a chance to build companies to last. And in fact, they even, they devote an entire chapter in the book to kind of cult-like cultures and and pruning people off of the tree that don't belong there. Um, and, and I do think that is really important. And so getting, you know, um, and I don't mean a coddling culture, I mean one where you're very selective in your recruitment and identification of talent. And then once you have them, you empower them, but you also give them tools. And as you know, we were we were, and I continue to be, a huge proponent of training and development. And, and I like to always know that we have the right people on the bus and that every dollar we invest is an investment and not just an expenditure. And so, so having, um, you know, having a great recruitment effort and then being able to train and develop, to, to create that trust, to create um, a team, um, to have a culture where people can see a way and a path forward to where they can go to higher leadership positions in the company, all of those things matter. Now, I've studied and I've been around and talked to lots of different people in my career about building culture. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've I mean, I've, I mean, frankly, as I said to uh, some folks just a few years ago, you know, anybody can build a culture when all of your employees are in one office in Los Angeles or two offices in Los Angeles and somewhere else or New York and Nashville. Um, you know, you can fall off a turnip truck and build, as we would say in Eastern North Carolina, and build a culture when everybody's in the same building. When you know that you have the secret sauce right, it's when you can have 100 or 200 offices in our case, we had 105 offices in 42 different states with a thousand different employees, and the culture was the same, um, same positive, uh, teamwork-oriented, uh, leadership-building, trusting, confident uh, uh, culture that we had in the home office in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, was the same uh, in Seattle, Washington, the University of Washington, or at UCLA on the campus at, at, in, in Los Angeles, 
um, I'm in Pullman, Washington, where Washington State was, or Blacksburg, Virginia, for Virginia Tech. So, you know, so to me, the the you know the 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 great teams and the great leaders are the folks who um, who understand that they understand you know that they ought to stay out of people's way, not micromanage. Um, they need to understand that the, you know, the most dangerous man of all is a man who doesn't know what he doesn't know. So hire subject matter expertise around you. I mean, Andy, you and I joked about this year, years ago when you were in, you were over here doing some training with, with some of my senior uh, team at, at IMG College. And, and I remember telling you, you know, when I walk over, the building was divided. So kind of all the sales team and marketing people were on one side. And on the other side were all the radio producers, TV producers, digital writers, publishers, finance people, um, HR, IT. If I walked on that side of the business, the CFO, the general counsel, the Herald would stand up on the back of their neck because they'd be like, why is he over here? Why is he on this side of the building? <laughs> he's supposed to stay over in his lane on the sales side of the building. Oh, he's that marketing, media, he's that a green guy that's out yeah, there trying to right. make money. He'll yeah. just screw our job <laughs> is to screw him up. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm a salesperson. I'm a marketing person. I'm a team builder. And I, yeah. I hired, you know, a great public company CFO, Joe, Joe Weatherly, to come be my CFO because that's not my forte. I hired, you know, the great Lou Doherty, who's still my partner at Till Capital, as Joe still is. Please say but, hi. Please say I hi. Will. And I would just not not just because I was working with them, but it literally and this is such an overused word. It it didn't just feel like a family. It was a family. Now, it families was. fight all the time. Yeah. This wasn't Kumbaya playing mood music no. in the background. This no. is I'll knock you out. But as long as I knock you out, when you wake up. We'll go in the right direction. Together. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was great then. And, you know, when you think about it today, I mean, probably 70 percent of my leadership team from the end of the ISP days and the and the and the four years we were all over at IMG, we're all still together. Yeah. And, and that still, does I mean, you can't you can't fake that. So, Jake. No. I don't want you to be mute. Uh, you know, we've got a few minutes left, but I know you're you're amazed and you're learning as we speak, um, as Ben speaks. But uh, what do you got circling around your gray matter? Well, as Brent, as Ben was mentioning, you know, he was kind of made to build, made to lead, made to create, um, innovate, and so on. I want to know, Ben, as as you know. You think about every single day, right? If you're a if you're a golfer, if you're any type of athlete, you got to think about that day and how you're going to go and compete that day. How do you mentally prepare for each day? And is it any different now than it was 20 years ago? No, years ago? I mean, no. I'll tell you. You know, you try to get better at it, but yeah, I was so privileged at the, you know, at the end of his life to to know um, Coach John Wooden, um, and you know, I, I, you know, coaches love reps and they love practice. There you go. And, um, and, you know, I get, I've probably given out 500, maybe a thousand copies of his book called my personal best. Um, but here's the thing, Jake, that's a great question. So I, I would say, first of all, you know, kind of knowing your limitations. And one of mine is that I am not a morning person. Uh, I'm a night owl. And another is that I have people pulling at me all the time. 
like literally on a daily basis, it's not less than tens. And it, and it can, and there've been times when it could probably, you know, tip at a hundred in a day trying to get at me. Um, and so uh, I followed kind of three strict rules my whole career, still do it. Number one, have a great gatekeeper who won't suffer fools gladly or let your calendar become a mess. Um, I frankly have went through a lot of assistance in my career um, because I needed I needed somebody who was really, um, uh, you know, the 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 left tackle. I was trying to remember the name of that movie with Sandra Bullock. But blind side. Blind, blind side. side. They always yeah. have your blind side. Um, secondly, I, I will do my to do list right after I leave this podcast. I'm going to go home um, and and uh, I'll do my my to do list today for tomorrow. Um, because it just, I find that it's just helpful. It also lets me be, can kind of correct, congratulate myself to look at today's list and, and, and kind of pat myself on the back and say, boy, you really did have a really productive day. Um, and, but the third thing I heard this, I, and I can't remember when I, you know, who or from whom I heard this, I think it was like Zig Ziglar or something, but the world's greatest salesman. Yes. The world's greatest salesman. Unlock the rest of your day. Um, by doing the most disagreeable thing first thing in the morning. So if you have to fire somebody, do it first thing. If you have a huge project you need to finish, dive into it. If you've got to negotiate the finer and most difficult points of a contract, do it first thing in the morning. Who wants to have a black cloud over their head the whole day knowing that they've got the really hard thing coming out? And I've just found that emotionally and, and you know, it, and just in my mind, it just opens up the entire day to get any of the hard stuff out of the way first thing. So that's what I do. And, and I would say, having learned from Ben and others during my career, the uh, executive that waits until Friday at 5.20 to make a decision usually fails and is out of a job pretty quickly, right? I agree. Monday at 7.30 a.m., that's when you do it. If it's Friday that you kept putting off on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, you're cooked. Yeah, and I Jake, totally agree. You, you hit them. Then I want to close with a question about the future uh, for Ben. Well, Ben, everyone's got their competitive advantage, and, and you kind of alluded to productivity earlier because if you're not able to have those productive days day after day after day, things can pile up. Um, we, know, we all know how that can go but how do you be productive? And then ultimately, what's your definition of productivity? Um, so, you know, I would say so kind of, all right, so as a foundational premise, um, you know, I, I think that people, you know, God put us all on earth to do one thing and that was to pursue joy. So I taught my kids, all they've heard from me their whole life, all of my teammates my whole life, there's never been a teammate I had that didn't hear this from me. A few things in life inspire joy, pursue only those. If you're not in love with what you do, if you're not in love with the people that you work with, then it's time to find something else to do. If you get that right, then everything else is kind of easy. Um, so for me, you know, kind of the next steps were identifying, as I said, great talent, getting the right people on the bus, but in the right places on the bus. And, and so I, I can't, I cannot, I mean, the number of times that I repurposed someone because they were just sitting in the wrong seat. I knew they had talent, but it's kind of like, you know, a general manager trying to, you know, or a manager of a baseball team saying, 
you know, I'm going to get so much more out of this person if I take the pressure off of him and take him out of the number one leadoff spot and put him number seven in the lineup. They're actually going to, their batting average is going to go up 20 points. And so um, I, I think that's really important. And I've only ever wanted people around me um, who were insufferable losers. Um, I mean, I want them to be just like me. They hate to lose. Therefore, they learn from their mistakes. They get better. They aspire to win at ISP, at IMG, and now at uh, Till Capital and our three portfolio businesses, TPG, our high school sports business, Revel, uh, our game day experiential business, and Die Hard, our e-commerce retail business. You know, our batting average in business development is about 750. That'll get you in every Hall of Fame in the country. Um, and, I, and I believe it's because our team, we have the right people, we have them in the right places. We're constantly training and retraining, trying to bring out all their potential. They're in a place where I think they hopefully feel appreciated and, the, and they feel like, you know, that, that they're not just happy, but they're literally just full of joy. Um, and, and so when, and I go back, as I said to Andy a moment ago, you know, when you look at our leadership team and see that 75% of the leadership team in our newest ventures are all people who worked with me in our older ventures at ISP and IMG, um, I, I think that speaks, you know, volumes to, you know, being pretty good at recruiting great talent, building culture, keeping people together, helping them realize their potential, building wealth, um, all of those things matter. And Ben, ben it's not good. just, it's not just the, ahead, well, it's not just the, hey, I worked for Ben before, so Ben's just going to take me along no. over there because, no. you know, I know him and he knows me. I mean, there's a no. lot more to it. Correct. And and I will tell you that um, that is, uh, you know, I mean, they know better than that. I mean, anybody that's worked with me for probably more than four hours knows that the gratuitous hiring and, and, and so forth is just not in my nature. I mean, I, I want, I mean, I want people who want to be in a chair where the power is theirs and where they have control over some element that, that means that we're either going to win or that we're going to lose. And I, I believe in very vertical organizations where you have great upstream accountability. I don't like to have 15 people to scream at and yell at. I don't do that anyway, but I do bark a little because um, Andy made me a member. I've been, I've been barked at by uh, yeah. Mr. Ben Sutton. Yeah, I, mean, I, I appreciated it. You know, but I'm just, I, I'm just a very, I mean, one of the reasons I, I, literally, seriously, one of the reasons I love Andy Delich so much <laughs> is that, is that he is a very blunt, candid, direct, transparent person. And I loved that, you know, I, I thought it was important with, you know, with like my sales managers who he worked very closely with. Um, I thought it was important that, that that one characteristic of me, because that's a characteristic I have carried over into their um, adjunct professor as it were. Uh, and, and I thought, you know, hearing it from somebody like Andy, who's accomplished so much would, would also be like, you know, um, it, it's kind of, I used to say this about Andy and his, and his partner, Andy, when they were doing this work for us, you know, I said, you know, guys, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like when you tell your eight-year-old, please go brush your teeth, please go brush your teeth at the end of the night and they won't do it. But the sweet uncle walks in, who's also just as blunt and says, hey, how about going to brush your teeth, Junior? And they run and do it because it's the favorite uncle, right? 
And so that's kind of like what this was for us. And, and so it's that repetition in coaching that they're hearing really similar and consistent strategies and concepts. Um, but they also have, you know, people that will, you know, will look them in the eye and say, well, you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious why you failed here. It's because of this, this, and this. And they'll take it in a constructive manner. Ben, I have never cried through 260 episodes in life in the front office until now. This is <laughs> this is incredible. Um, and Jake, uh, I, hopefully we are recording it because I these are real tears. Um, ben, you're walking up to 18th at Pebble in a few weeks. Um, you got a chip shot to the green at 18. Um, as you're uh, looking at that pitch, um, name, image, and likeness, right? It has college sports all up in the air and can't figure out what's going to happen. You mentioned the multiplicity of constituencies who go, we can do this. We can't do that. I got to talk to the basketball coach. I got to talk to the shoe manufacturer, the state legislature. Um, from There's no better person in the country to... to uh, look at this, what do you see in the future of collegiate sports as it relates to building itself in a business while providing education for millions of young men and women? So, so first of all, we're in that inflection point that lots of industries go through. And, and one of those is be careful what you wish for. Um, and, and because the law of unintended consequences is severe. And I've talked to lots of coaches and student athletes and lots of them disagree with me, you know, um, or, or frankly, lots of them are a lot more politically correct than I am. Uh, I'm going to say what's on my mind. I think that for an 18 year old young man to come out of uh, high school and get an $85,000 a year to, uh, education at Wake Forest, plus, you know, incredible travel opportunities that would never have the best health care in America. Um, uh, great coaching. They're going to be, you know, be, you know, developed as human beings, not just as, um, as, as students and not just as athletes. Uh, I think that's pretty good for an 18 year old kid with a high school degree. <laughs> that's just me. Um, NIL's here and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, but they better figure out soon, um, how that's going to be, uh, regulated. And, you know, and, and so the, 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 the space is fraught with entrepreneurs, which that's great. Um, and they'll help, they'll help drive whatever the solution might be. But the space is also, quite frankly, fraught by people um, who don't maybe necessarily have the student athlete or the school's best interest um, at hand. And so you're going to see lots of friction in this over, over a period of time. Um, I do think what's going to, to happen is, is, you know, um, I think you'll see, uh, you know, a move. Um, I don't have any special knowledge or inside information, but just as I kind of, you know, work on my own numbers, I think you'll see things like the college football playoff. Um, if I just say expand, everybody will say, well, duh. Um, but I think it will expand to something like 12 teams. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it still protects the bowl season um, for, and, and it keeps, you know, uh, frankly, it keeps one third of the power 65 
engaged in playing and concerned about where they're going to end up at the end of the year, um, the top one third every year in the com in competitiveness are going to have a chance to, if you have 12, 24 are going to be in play until the weekend before or two weekends before. Right. I mean, that, because that, that's just the nature. I mean, I've done the math on it. Lots of other people have too. Uh, maybe it goes to eight, but I think it'll definitely increase. Um, I still, you know, I, I yearn for, you know, I like all commerce tournaments. There's nothing like the NCAA basketball tournament. We have everybody playing in the deal, but the fact of the matter is, is there's, you know, I mean, and then some people get really angry with me when I say this, there are 150 schools that shouldn't be playing at division one level. And what other event in all of American sports brings the country together yeah. any more than March madness? None. No, I, no, <laughs> none. And so, but so I, I think there's going to be friction around whether the power 65 and maybe a few other schools get added in, kind of go do their own thing. Um, or uh, they're going to they're going to look hard at, at at you know a national event like the NCAA basketball tournament, and say, well, who's really driving the value here? Um, you know, the, the, I mean, here's the thing: capitalism and free enterprise are great hallmarks of our society. And so, so when private industry um, and entrepreneurs get engaged in a space. Um, most of the time that space will end up being uh, more productive and better than it is today because they got in there. And I believe in five years or seven years or 10 years, we would have this same conversation. We'd say, boy, do you remember when these guys got in there? They were kind of like ISP was in 1992. They got in there and they kind of sorted this out. Right. Um, government is really not good at, at, at doing, I mean, there's virtually nothing government can well, do. Well, it comes it down to teamwork, do leadership, and right. trust. As much as college might be complicated, it's less complicated than real government and yeah. can get stuff done. And correct. And so, and, and I, so I want the market to fix it. I don't want the government to fix it. I actually don't think that the, that the NCAA or the conferences or in universities will necessarily be the best fixers of of the of the situation right um you know i mean i say government i mean let's get let's call it what it is i mean they're not 50 people that are on capitol hill between the united states senate and the house of representatives who could score a job in any company that i owned or, or had an investment in and that's not hyperbole there are literally not 50 people that either of us would hire and so do i want those people trying to solve for something about which they have no subject matter expertise um, and they're really not that that bright or curious anyway. They're, look, there's some fine people that work in our government in elected positions, but I, I hope that the free market will be a market that, as it generally is in America, uh, turns out to be a fair market, and that great solutions are driven by really smart people who want to make sense of this. So, state. Ben, I saw the pitch. You're three inches from the cup. It was incredibly well played and all you do is have a tap-in, is there anything, is what tap-in would you leave us with as we uh, move on in, in our life? Um, you know, I would just say this. I, I grew up very modestly in Eastern North Carolina in a little rural, on the edge of a little rural town that probably had 1,500 or 2,000 people in it. Um, lived a Mayberry-esque life, uh, you know, and, and, but, but we were not by any stretch of the imagination, 
uh, wealthy people. So um, I understand the goodness of others and I, I travel all over the world. And I, I know that people, you know, right now, everybody, it seems like not everybody in America, but lots of people in America, news outlets and celebrities and so forth, everybody's vying to be the biggest victim. Who's the most aggrieved? Who's been hurt the most? Who's got the loudest complaint? Um, you know, I, I think America is a great country. And what happened for my team, for my family, for me, um, could only have happened in the United States of America. Everywhere I go in the whole world, everybody I meet wants to be an American. Every single person I meet wants to be an American. And, and so we live in this great, wonderful, uh, joyful pursuit of liberty every single day, the freest country known uh, to humankind. We have our challenges. We should address those challenges. We should never rest on our laurels. That's not what winners do. We talked about it at the outset. But, but some appreciation for how good we have it and a little bit less victimization um, and, and more uh, rugged independence would be uh, something that I would leave with your viewers, listeners today. Well, we appreciate it. Jake, you want to take us home? No, incredible perspectives, Ben, and really appreciate your insights uh, across the board on today's episode. Um, certainly, I just got one last question for you. On the tap-in, are you leaving the pin in or are you taking it out? Oh, I take that bad boy out. I like it. There's nothing, it's, it's, there's just nothing like hearing that ball when it's settling down there in the end of the, the, the I didn't. Bottom. I didn't know if you were. I didn't know if you were looking for the backboard. You know, to no, don't need a back. Don't need a backboard. <laughs> ben, when you come back, I'll be in a kayak uh, paddling up the seventeenth. Wave at me. I'll come up. I'll carry your bags. And it's great to see you. We really appreciate your time. And uh, stay safe and sane in the new different. Thank you, brother. Great right. being with both of you. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by BrainFuel. Remember, you can get 15% off your next purchase at BrainFuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, Fuel.com, with the code LIFO15, L-I-F-O-1-5 at checkout. And if you like BrainFuel, give us a shout out, comment, share, and leave a review. And a reminder to get your copy of LOL, Loss of Logo, What's Your Next Move? Our new book written by Andy Dolich and your host, Jake Hirschman. If you go to mascotbooks.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll receive 50% off at your checkout or available on Amazon, ebook, and print.